X-Ray. And welcome to the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. We are coming to you once again from our respective houses. Apologies for the dog, my kids, any other, my neighbors who are clacking stuff together. <laughs> yeah, it seems like things are quiet over in my neighborhood. Yeah, which so. is weird because you have like kind of a more busy neighborhood in general. But I think in these COVID days, there's a lot of people just hanging around their house, like doing projects and stuff. And Yeah, it's true. And uh, this happens. It's a, So we're recording here on a Friday, a beautiful, sunny Friday afternoon. Um, and it's possible that the that that is affecting the noise level. If we'd been doing this on a Tuesday, I, I have noticed quite a bit of wood chipping and <laughs> grinding and lots of things out there. But right now we're okay. Ah, the noises of, of urban life. That's right. <laughs> How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I am, I'm watching my weather app with anxiety. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Down. <laughs> but, but we just discussed yesterday. So yesterday we got together actually and had like, we saw each other in person. Uh, yeah, we 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 went to a place of uh, brewing and enjoyed a malt beverage together. Enjoyed a few malt beverages, <laughs> exceptionally good malt beverages, by the way. We went to Wayfinder. This yeah. people know because Wayfinder was the champion of our Pilsner contest. Although neither of us had that Pilsner, they had another fantastic Pilsner there. They but, did. Way, Wayfinder is quite close to my house and. Not super far from you, so just gorgeous, gorgeous beers presented beautifully on a beautiful deck on a beautiful afternoon. Um, what, what could be better? Nothing. <laughs> it's true, and that and it was a beautiful afternoon, unlike tomorrow, which is supposed to be a hundred degrees. So. Yeah, the point I was going to get to though is that you mentioned that you now have a little bit of uh, cooling in your house, which I'm, which you're going to want this weekend. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And we we did a remodel uh, last fall and threw a mini split in our new upstairs bedroom. Me, so. I still have the old like clunky little window thing that I throw in the window <laughs> when it gets too hot, and then crank it and hope that I can keep it below triple digits in my house. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, One thing about the homes of Portland, Oregon is they are not weatherproof. They're, they have thin walls and thinner windows and they don't keep the, the warm in in the winter and they don't keep the, the heat out in the summer. So yeah. Yeah. That's not like, not like living in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. And, and hot weather was never something that you had to think too much about. Um, of course that changes every year. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, I should introduce you. Uh, you're Jeff Allworth. You write books. Often you write books about beer. Beer Bible is one of those books. Secrets of Master Brewers, The Widmer Way, two other beer uh, books that you've written. Uh, and you're going to come out with the Beer Bible Part 2 or Version 2 or Volume 2 or <laughs> maybe, it's just I, the, maybe it's the Beer Bible 2. I should I, I should put that in the script so you don't spitball because uh, you always get it wrong. <laughs> Call the mangle, beer bibler. <laughs> mangle what's happening. It's the second edition of the beer bible. Yeah, updated, revised. I think I might have thrown that in there. That might have been one of those choices I put in there. Uh, yeah. yeah, good. That's who I am, and who you are is Patrick Emerson. Professor of Economics at Oregon State University. Yeah, and by the way, the last time we talked, we were we've been talking about this a lot about what we're doing at Oregon State University in the fall. That has now changed. We are now oh. we are now pretty much all online or remote this uh, this fall, except for the few exceptions where you really have to be uh, physically present, like a lab. Um, but pretty much everything else, everything in my school, my school policy is uh, is remote. You have a uh, – Oregon State University is a land-grant university and has an ag, a big ag component kind of yeah. famously. So you do have a lot of labs and like flower, <laughs> uh, greenhouses and cows and stuff, right? Yeah. I guess we can't just leave the cows alone. <laughs> they probably need to eat. Uh, yeah. I don't know too much about that. It's not my my uh, area. Uh, we, You know, the opposite side of that is that we kind of have a bit of a stunted – arts and sciences um, uh, aside. So uh, 
the the amount of laboratory work that goes on in the College of uh, Science is probably a bit less than some other similar sized universities. But yeah, there are a lot of things. We also have um, ocean oceanography and atmospheric uh-huh. sciences and lots of things that require hands on instruments and things like that. So I don't know. Um, for us, it's pretty simple. Uh, we're just policy people. <laughs> economists, sociologists, political scientists. Uh, so we can do most of what we do remotely and we will. Uh, so good. yeah, the latest casualty and the PAC 12 of course has canceled the fall sports season. So, and the big 10 has canceled and I think the others will fall eventually. Maybe the SEC is still trying to get their football going. We'll see. Yeah. They're going to cancel. I'm calling right. my shot. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It's uh, COVID is, is, as we were just talking about last night, COVID is quite manageable when you can sit outside on the deck at Wayfinder and be socially distant and still social. Uh, COVID looks a lot different when the weather starts getting bad and you got to be indoors. I know. I, I, I'm trying to get all my beer drinking in now because I think uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. fall comes, uh, I don't want to be sitting outside and uh, pubs may not be safe. So yeah. drink them if you got them. All right. Well, today I am like absolutely over the moon because literally since we first began our podcast. <laughs> yeah. How many years ago? Talking about, probably started talking about this in episode two. Yeah. We wanted to do a podcast on distribution, beer distributors. And we just never, we never did it because it's big and complicated and it's hard to get people to talk about it. That's right. But today this changes. Not only today, we're going to do, this is such a big thing and deserves it. We're going to do two podcasts on distribution. Dun, dun, dun. We really need a music cue there. <laughs> Better than mine. Yeah, I'm excited. It's, uh, it is a, it is a huge topic. Uh, the way that you get your beer, whether you buy it in a six pack at the grocery store or a pint at the pub or a glass at the uh, restaurant, very often, in most cases, uh, a distributor will have touched that. And this this is a mostly invisible thing for most people. So. Yeah. In America, there is a three-tier system pretty much everywhere where the distributor takes beer from the producer and then turns around, buys it from the producer, turns around and sells it to the retailer. So there is a, a, a three-part process with a middle a middle company, a middle person in uh, in. The middle. I was trying to figure out how to get out of that one. <laughs> In between. <Yeah. laughs> uh, oh, my friend, as a writer, I have been there where the sentences uh, foil you. I could have stuck to your script, by the way, but I didn't. As you see, I'm completely off it. Uh, anyway. That's how big this topic is. It blows the script. Yeah, you can't even. No, no script can contain this topic. That's uh, right. But actually, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. And uh, and probably as a beer lover, as a craft beer lover, as an economist, and in, in my case, it's really hard to sort of know what to think about this. Like, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Are these uh, companies just adding costs and not giving you any benefits? So we try to explore some of these issues. Today, we're going to welcome Craig Malarkey of Sound Beverage Distributors in Bellingham, Washington. He's going to give us a full primer on distribution. Uh, he's going to describe some of his more esoteric aspects, and we're going to probe a bit uh, this relationship and what it all means and, and, and why it exists. Indeed. So, uh, in fact, we're not just going to do that today, but we're going to do that next week as well. But uh, part one is today. Uh, we will get to that uh, part one of the interview soon. But first, of course, before we do that, we have to bring you the news. We haven't commented on the coronavirus lately, but this is a relevant time to do so. Unlike most of Western Europe, the U.S. has not been able to stop the spread of cases uh, or the worryingly high uh, death rate. The U.S. is currently averaging over 1,000 deaths a day and 53,000 new cases a day. Um, By the way, I did the math, so that's accurate as of recording time. Um, And meanwhile, Congress has been unable to pass a new round of relief that would help individuals who've lost additional unemployment benefits or businesses who may be running out of their PPP and other support services. Yeah, so, the Senate just tough times. Senate just said bye bye until September eighth, something like that. So yeah, after Labor Day. Uh, so yeah, so this is not good. No. 
<laughs> what else is there to say? Yeah, uh, dang, dang coronavirus. But the good the good news is the Russians have a vaccine, and we'll all have it. That's right. <laughs> all right. Uh, the next news bit. That's the background for a new report on a small brewery performance in a survey of members. The Brewers Association estimates craft beer sales are down ten percent in the first half of twenty twenty. On the positive side, however, there are over 8,000 breweries in the U.S., and as of yet, only 112 have closed. So a very small percentage so far. So they're so hanging on so far. Yeah, and uh, something interesting happened here that I think sheds light on the two news items. There's a, a wonderful pub that opened up years ago that you and I loved. It's called the Toffee Club, a soccer pub, British pub had the full English, had Fuller's on tap. They announced last week that they were shutting down. Yeah. That was super sad. Uh, And then, but we were curious, they had recently opened uh, Away Days, a little brewery, kind of a side project uh, that does cask ale and kind of British style beers. And it turns out that is not closing down. Um, So I think it's sort of a a lesson. (laughs) The coronavirus has been bad for for everything. Uh, but if you're looking at pubs versus breweries, uh, yeah. being able to sell Brit beer uh, is a much better business model. Yeah, on-premise sales is, is just not not working very well. It's interesting because when they set up Away Days Brewing, they set it up as a separate little entity. It's right next door, and uh, I believe they share a kitchen, although the menu, I think, is slightly different in the two places. Um, but it is a separate little uh, business and um, was um, separate branding and marketing and all that. Uh, and I guess for now, they've been able to package and sell enough beer to keep that business going. So that's great. Yeah, it, it is great. And I <laughs> I hold out hope that they'll be able to bootstrap that back to a future toffee club. Um, there's no talk of that, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I can wish. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real loss. I mean, that's one of the few, the few places that really hurts. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been amazing. I've just been seeing more and more, uh, announcements of restaurants, some really successful and famous restaurants, uh, here and elsewhere that are closing. It's just, it's just, this, it's tough. And when we look at the way the United States has handled this, it doesn't give me a lot of hope. This could be months or well, let's not say years, but this could be a long time. And uh, oh boy, it's really bad news for pubs and and little retailers that don't have outdoor seating uh, and don't sell beer. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get off this depressing. Thanks for, the, thanks for that news, Jeff. This is a good news segment today. <laughs> well, in, in one way, it really sets us up for this topic that we're going to talk on, touch on today because beer does get taken away. And who does it get taken away by? Well, that's an interesting question that we'll, we'll delve into. Yeah, so let's not waste any more time. Uh, let's uh, turn now to our uh, part one of our interview with uh, Craig Malarkey. All right, and joining us today uh, is Craig Malarkey. He is the general manager of Sound Beverage Distributors Incorporated of Bellingham, Washington. Sound Beverage is a 70-year-old family wholesaler affiliated with Anheuser-Busch, uh, but which has an unusual mix of craft brands, imports, ciders, FMBs, and seltzer. They distribute a variety of brands in Whatcom and Skagit counties, including Constellation Brands, Mark Anthony, Boston Beer, and Diageo, as well as locals like Colshin, Wander, and Aslan. Craig, welcome. Great to be here. Did we get that right? Yeah, I mean, that's what we do. We sell <laughs> <laughs> well, beer in, in, in those counties. Our portfolio is a, a bit more extensive than what you you talked about and then obviously we have a history so well let's get started and have you tell us a little bit about the wholesale tier uh i think uh most most people who listen to this podcast will have at least the basic uh, understanding that there is a three-tier system in the united states beginning with the the brewery the producer uh who sells to the distributor or wholesaler and the wholesaler who sells to the retailer uh, in draft and in package. Are we, are we accurate so far before I get yep. too far? Okay. Yep. That's what we do. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, we, we buy beer from the supplier that can be a large supplier like Anheuser-Busch and their sophisticated forecasting systems and incredible 
inventory and logistics uh, departments, and it can range down to a local guy down the street who who we forecast and and buy their beer. So yeah, we 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 buy beer and then you know we buy it with the intent on selling it, and uh, and and we move it through to retail, both on and off premise. And in in distribution, it's different when we're talking about beer, wine, spirits, and non-alcoholic products. So why is that? Well, there's a there's many legal differences between the, the different types, but beer is a very perishable product, and that's probably the biggest difference. You know, we have to constantly monitor the quality of of all of our beer and we track it daily and got to be, it's got to stay good. We got to package it or you know, warehouse it accordingly, uh, merchandise it accordingly. And, and, you know, so we can move it through the system wine, you know, you can, your, your inventory is not turning nearly as fast spirits is, you know, it's a bottle at a time. It's a very different world. So, We've evolved over time with the change in laws up here. We used to be a big beer and wine house. In fact, we had over 50 share of the wine business up here, you know, five and a half years ago. <laughs> and those laws changed, so everything went warehouse. Uh, you can't go warehouse with, with beer. You have to go through the DFB, the system that is set up, and primarily because it is a perishable product. So let's follow that perishable product the brewery uh, and, and describe how how what what happens. So the brewery makes the beer, packages it up. Um, they put it in in cans and they put it in kegs. Then what happens? How do you what do you what do you do from there? Well, before that, you're not necessarily with the large brewers. You know, we are forecasting volume, so they are building our inventories based off our our forecasts, and subsequently they're building their production based off all of our forecasts. The same holds true, you know, I'll continually use the relationship we have with a local brewer as an example. He's, he's an incredible guy. He makes incredible beer and he's, he's, he's taken incredible chances and together, you know, we've been able to really sell a bunch of, of his, of his beer, but we have the same discussions with him and his team. You know, this is, this is what we see the consumer doing. This is what I think you can try. This is how much we think we can do. And then we all get to work. And, and so it's a wide ranging forecasting and relationship uh, system, how it gets to your, to your warehouse and what you were thinking when you forecasted it. So, uh, okay, so that, that's before the beer is made. Then once the beer is made, you pick it up and you take it to a warehouse? We take it to where, you know, and I think every wholesaler would say the same thing. Our offices are generally at where, where we warehouse product. Mm-hmm. So we bring it to our warehouse. We offload it. We all have, it becomes in our system now. Everybody has a different system, but they're, once it's in our system, it's locked in, and then it, it hits us technology-wise. Sales reps know that it's in the house. They're available. It's available to order. Inventory is constantly flowing so that they can visualize what we have and what we don't have. So it goes into our system, and we move it through the system. Okay. And so you guys have a fleet of trucks. So at a certain point, that beer goes from the warehouse onto a truck and out to a retailer. Correct. And but that's not the end of the that's not the end of it, right? You're you're still kind of responsible for that beer. We are the um, the sales team writes the beer. We pick it every night. We deliver it, and that's just what we do pretty much five and a half days a week. But once it's in the stores, you know, all the wholesalers have a team of merchandisers. Um, there's back stock in stores that's constantly being rotated to the cold box every morning. I mean, if you go into where are you guys at in Portland? Uh, southeast, east side. So, you know, you go into a Fred Meyer down there uh, or, or over there, one of the big uh, volume Fred Meyers. When you're in there at 7 a.m., there's going to be boards of beer on the floor all getting rotated and filled up. So, yeah, while it's in the store, 
we move it through the the store is basically what we're doing. And what happens if that beer doesn't sell in code? What do you do with the the product at that point? Well, first off, you know, that's a bad thing. Right. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, that goes back to that I don't forecasting. Know if I'm talking to Patrick or, or Jeff, but, you know, that economics deal there, you, you don't want to be pouring out beer. It's a bad thing. But if someone drinks a bad beer, we lose that, that, that customer forever. So we, we identify it. We pull it off the shelf. We, we put it in the back room. It's labeled. And our trucks, which are in grocery stores two to three times a week, we pick it up or a merchandiser takes it back to the warehouse and we destroy that product. Now, if it's a keg, uh, you're going to deliver that keg to a pub or a restaurant. And then at a certain point, they're going to drink the beer and then there's a keg. So what happens to that keg? How does that get back to the brewery? Well, that's simple. I mean, they're always coming and going. So we always have cooperage. And when there is a bad keg, which is not often, I mean, um, the retailer is going to let us know immediately. We're going to pop it off the handle immediately. And we're going to get them a new beer, new keg. You know, they can't tell us when it's 90% gone. You know, it couldn't have been that bad. You know, it's, but if it's a bad, bad beer, we don't want anybody drinking it. Um, and they know that, and they're buying the beer to sell the beer. And right. generally speaking, beer is, is good. But we'll, we'll bring a new keg out, credit them that, we get it back. We'll contact, um, let's just say something different happened to a beer. Man, every time we got this batch of of a, a local craft brewer, you know, this particular batch, it's just, it's out of control. The yeast went, who knows what happened, but it's, it's just foaming. We would immediately, you know, check and see if there was an issue. This is rare. And we would identify what the issue was on those and they get out of the system real quick and, and back to the winery is a simple thing. It's just, it's administrative that, that sometimes can be complicated. Yeah, that's, I, that's, I'm glad you answered that. I, I was actually thinking about the empty kegs. How do those, how do you, how do you handle kegs getting those back to breweries? There's, uh, uh, companies that, that handle all of that. Uh, and then some suppliers, Anheuser Busch, you know, does it differently. We, we deliver them back or they pick them up. Um, okay. yeah, there's, there's companies that come in and pick up all of our empties and, it's, you know, it's work. It's the cost of doing business. Got to get that stuff back. All right, Patrick, I have a few more questions on this point, but I want to let you ask yeah. a question if you have one here. Well, I'm always worried about getting too inside baseball, but I was really curious about you. You do your forecasts, you buy from the brewers, and then you have this uh, product stocked in your warehouse and you have a sales team that's in, in charge of selling it. And what I'm wondering is how do you deal with that sort of supply and demand dynamic like what if fred meyer wants a whole bunch more than you thought and uh um, how do you how do you sort of negotiate the the distribution of the beer once you have it well most of the stuff fred meyer is selling is you know there's it's enough volume base that deliveries are coming in fast and furious right but in the case of maybe a specialty uh craft product um you know, we, we have to manage that and we know we're not going to get more and, and no, you don't get it all. Um, <laughs> it's going to be allocated in, right. in those types of situations. If that answers your question. So, yeah. So you basically just, you, it's based on sort of relationships you have and, and trying to ensure that you're treating all your, all your clients well. And we want so to treat forth. everybody well. And, yeah. and obviously, you know, that account they don't ask, you know, the, the big grocery stores, they don't ask for stuff like that. They, right, right, right. they just want service. They want to move the beer through the system. They want you off the floor, you know, by a certain time. So the consumer's ready to come in and shop that section. So it's, we're talking about a different consumer base and, and retail base when we talk about stuff like that. Yeah. And then I want to just ask you a little bit more about their relationship because I'm fascinated by your relationship with the big retailers like the Fred Meyer. So you have a team of uh, what are they called merchandisers that come in and, and basically manage the shelves for Fred Meyer for every grocery store every morning. 
And so Fred Meyer basically just sort of gives over their cooler to you and that's it. Like uh, you, you figure out their supply and demand dynamics. You've stocked it the way that you know it should be stocked and Fred Meyer just keeps out of the way. No, no. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, nice. How many people do you want me to put in there, Fred Meyer, and just let me manage it? <laughs> no, unfortunately, that's not the case. The schematics are set corporately. Uh-huh. It's our responsibility to make sure you know they're always full, and they're and they're you know they're good. There's, the schematics are set with what sells, and we're fortunate. We have a substantial book, so naturally, right. Every grocery store in us, you know, we're going to be attached to hip. We 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 have to work well together. Yeah. And so and so is 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 that kind of like where they're sort of sharing their scanner data with you, or basically you understand what's what's going off the shelves by what you see, or do they sort of tell you what they think they're going to need? Um, it's it, it's a different at grocery level. We are able to impact some things shelf wise at store level. We're able to access all sales information. Okay. But if you take Fred Meyer as an example, it's mm-hmm. a great customer. And, and the couple stores up here that we have a few of them up here, but two of them are two of their biggest ones. They're fantastic customers, but we don't really influence that. So we talk, you know, about programs and what have you. And, and our team is selling at store level versus. The convenience store across the street mm-hmm. where we do gain total access to their sales and then we do business planning dealing directly with the owner of, of, of you know a convenience store right it's a very, very different dynamic as you can appreciate yeah okay go ahead jeff i've done my inside baseball now <laughs> yeah i think there's more uh more in uh, more stuff to mine there i have other questions but just to step back a a hair and let's get the super basic stuff out of the way first. Um, One of the things that uh, is characteristic of distributorships is that they have a region. Uh, You know, you you, uh, serve two uh, counties in Washington state. How, uh, how do those things get sliced up? How do you decide, uh, how, how did the regions get established? Yeah. I mean, that's a very good question. They've been established kind of over time. Um, now they may have changed um, leadership in different areas over time, or more importantly, consolidation um, over time. Mm-hmm. But you know, a county is a county, and if you want to sell in that county, you can't just come rolling in unless you have beers. So we, in fact, did that. We, we sell in four counties, actually. And when we lost wine, we decided to expand our territory for reasons that were necessary for our survival that I don't need to get into. <laughs> uh, into San Juan County, the San Juan Islands, Skagit <laughs> County, you know, some decent sized cities down there and, and Island County. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, so our book, we, I sent the team down there with a squirt gun and an empty lunch trail. <laughs> and you know it's been a haul but but we we bought in to the craft segment and i had all these wine people that we had just lost a significant amount of business and we rolled you know all these talented people naturally into craft so we saw an opportunity down there to go into this territory without having to acquire brand rights solely to build your portfolio because that's how you do it. You have to go in and you have to buy the brand rights. Um, or you can try to build brands on yourself, which is exceedingly difficult. And um, <laughs> that's what we did and acquired a few things. And so it, it's we now are servicing that. And if you want to come in and sell those brands, you can't just come in. You have to talk to the local distributor that's been servicing those brands and, and, and then get into the market that way. Uh, that's uh, uh, one of those fascinating historical things. Um, one of the other fascinating historical things is in the United States, we tend to think of distributors as being affiliated with one of the larger breweries. Um, and now I think that's at, it's mostly AB and, and the Miller Coors breweries. Historically, it went, you know, there were other, there were other breweries. And in the 
Northwest, uh, you know, in, in Sound's history, I'm sure you had other independent breweries, Olympia and Henry Weinhards and uh, Rainier and others. Um, how does that, did that, in your tenure or uh, how does that evolve, that connection to the bigger breweries as the market becomes much more fragmented fragmented under craft brewing? Um, how do you kind of like begin to put other brands together and build up your portfolio that way? Well, I mean, you have to understand the dramatic change that the industry, you know, has, I've been here with this business for 23 years and when I got here, I bet there was 80 distributors in the state of Washington, beer and wine distributors. <laughs> and, wow. and every market, every market had four, if not five distributors, every tiny market, you know, down in your market, Portland was carved up like there was no tomorrow, but you could have a pocket uh, people selling Henry's down there and they just had tiger for whatever reason. <laughs> you had all kinds of that stuff and they'd have other brands. So you had, you know, this system that was, was good. It was good old boy. And then the big brewers came in and they gobbled up a ton of market share. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, many of these were smaller Miller Coors and Hauser Bush distributors that happened to sell some craft beers that this business just wasn't for them anymore. It didn't, it didn't pencil out. And quite frankly, some of them were asleep at the wheel and didn't see, they were a different generation. They did not see mm-hmm. what was ahead with the craft, craft beer phenomenon in the Northwest, especially, you know, if you were to stay local, you know, we, there's always going to be an extremely strong local, local category in Bellingham, Washington. Um, so they missed out on that, that type, because that's was that was teed up for them. Mm-hmm. There's probably only 20 distributors in the state of Washington. Yeah, you know, just because there are phenomenal Anheuser Busch distributors that could do an incredible job with local craft brands if they choose to, and some of them have. So it's not the, it's not because they're an Anheuser Busch distributor that just makes them, quite frankly, better distributor operators Hmm. and no one at Anheuser-Busch is taking the path and the position that they did 23 years ago to not sell other products. Um, That's not a a charge anymore. And that's relieved a lot of pressure, but you got to come up with a system. And just because you have an Anheuser-Busch in one market to sell your product, you need it in all those markets to have a system that's why, you know, very strong companies, good companies. I, I We compete with Columbia. So you guys know Columbia very, very well, being in Portland. Um, we, keep, we compete with Columbia. They're very, very good. But, you know, their meetings are different. Their reach is across, you know, two and a half, three, four states, California. So it's a different discussion point on that. And it's influential. But... Columbia is not, they're not, they're selling Miller Coors, but they're selling craft beers with the best of them. They're very good at that. Also, big picture wise, they're always going to struggle with the local, local guy. They would have trouble selling the local Bellingham beer. They would have trouble, you know, and just warehousing that 150 miles away. That's, there's always going to be room for a local distributor to sell local products and get whatever else you can. Yeah, I, I toured the Miletus uh, facility here uh, two or three years ago, and it, going to the warehouse is actually enlightening because you see how much product there are, there there is out there. And Miletus does not have a gigantic book, you know. They they it's have pretty good uh, size. A, I think. Yeah, it's pretty good size, but it's not anywhere near and, as big as Columbia. Mark Anthony, but he, Rob Robbie Miletus has done a hell of a job building the craft book that he has over the years being an Anheuser-Busch distributor. I'm saying it's different now. It wasn't, it wasn't different right? when he was building up Ninkasi down it's, there and he had AB breathing down his throat. He's, he's, Robbie's done a hell of a job building that portfolio. And it, it's an incredibly complex business you're in because you're getting all this beer 
uh, from all these different breweries. And now breweries don't make one or two beers. You know, they're not like Bud and Bud Light. They're making 30 or 40 beers. Some of them are in six stoles. Some of them are in, you know, six packs. And you've got all these accounts. So you got this warehouse where you walk into a warehouse and you see all the different products and all the different places they have to go. It's it's kind of shocking how complex this operation is. So I, I uh, just a little editorial well, comment there and hats off too. to you. It's, uh, I mean, when you walk into, you know, our warehouse, Robbie's warehouse, I'm sure. And I don't know if he's going to appreciate the fact I'm talking about his business, but when you walk into his warehouse, you won't hear anything at five o'clock. It's silent because it's all voice picking now. There's no music. It's packages in our warehouse are just numbers. It is not, you know, a modern times, uh, this hazy IPA 16 ounce can. No, it's a number. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a different world. Uh-huh. You know, it's quiet and they're just repeating numbers. Huh. Let's shift a little bit to what what your business is. And I'm actually going to rely on you, Patrick, to kind of help out with this part of it. But for people to understand how, how the beer business works, it, it's, you know, you have to understand that uh, you have these three tiers. And so when it goes to the distributor, uh, you're buying the beer and selling it again. So you've got, uh, you've got your, your piece of this pie, which uh, has your own your entire business, uh, you know, is is uh, is distinct from the other two ends. So, would you talk a little bit about the the overhead that you're dealing with, like what that constitutes? So you've got big trucks, you've got warehouses, um, and you know, when people want to, th- when we're thinking about that markup uh, before it goes to the retailer, what well, all is from involved a in that? Cost standpoint, to you know, manpower is substantial. Um, you know, so we have, in our case, we have 100 employees. Um, the warehouse, and you know, we all have large warehouses. In inside that warehouse, as you saw, some expensive refrigerated space. And then we all have, um, you know, a sales team, a full fleet of uh, sales uh, vehicles, and then delivery trucks. Um, so the cost is is. You know, if you don't have an anchor brand, it's going to be really, really difficult to to get over overcome those costs and provide the service levels that are necessary to compete in the marketplace and, and you know, make sure we're moving as much beer through the system for the consumer to, you know, get fresh beer, cold, uh, you know, when it's ready to be sold. So it's... it's um, I mean, that's, that's, that's the system, you know, there's forklifts, there's warehouses, there are a lot to, uh, to keep up uh, heavy equipment. Um, There's just a lot of cost to it. That's why it's, it's imperative. Like I said, that we all have at least one large brand and you build around that. And if you don't, then fine, you're, you're going to be a different type of distributor and every market will always have room for this in my opinion and that is the small local craft guy that that is going to have a nice portfolio and their customer base is going to be significantly smaller and it's going to be a different different way to distribute beer but it'd be a good one so as an economist i'm always thinking about sort of the the presence of this market and uh what fascinates me is the fact that this market was originally created uh, through regulation, but it seems that the, you actually provide a fairly valuable uh, service that really scales up this sort of whole logistics, logistics and sales operation, keeping track of volumes and sales and forecasts, and then being able to move the product to where it needs to go at the right time. And so I guess one way to sort of ask this question is, do you think without sort of the regulatory uh, imperative, would this, would this market still exist? Would there be distributors? It's an alcoholic product, so it can't be a free-for-all, first right. off. So it needs to, you know, it, it has to be managed, whether it's federally or statewide or whatever. So it's going to come into different regulations right out of the gate that you can't escape. Right. Um, 
and I think that's what complicates that that is what complicates everything and why it has to be monitored so much. So no, I think it does have to be regulated. Yeah. So I guess it wasn't, it was less about whether it needs to be regulated, but if there was no regulation, it seems that you're providing a fairly valuable service to these, to these companies, which is that you're going to manage the whole of sort of logistics for them. You're going to sort of help forecast for them. You're going to make sure that the end uh, retailers sort of know about your product and are able to speak intelligently and think about your product. And so what I was just thinking is, uh, it seems like even in an unregulated market, you'd have something valuable to sell, I guess. Yeah, we would because we have information. We have what they need. And I, and I wouldn't, we don't manage their business. Right. I'd like to say we partner with them in maximizing their beer business. You know, if you're going to manage a business, you want as much information as you can get. We have that technology-wise. You know, the, the beer business is pretty, pretty slick. I mean, a... An objective can come down from a supplier all the way to street level uh, in our sales reps, uh, you know, iPad that he's doing the order with to you know make sure you get, you know, we have a push on this draft handle and this, you know, it's specific to that account. Boom, rolls right back up. So technology-wise, it's we're very aware of breaking down the market and where different things sell and where other products are going to sell better. I don't know how much you want to get into this and I don't mean to push you too far, but I'm just curious, like how, how do you decide, uh, the, um, the prices that you charge the, the brewers, how, how does that get set? Is that just negotiation or is there like a fixed fee that you charge everybody? No. Oh no. I mean, it, it kind of, it's, it's this process. So you, you have to, it, it's generated generally from the supplier. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to take a price increase. They, you know, there's, there's studies behind it. Where's the next price point going to be? Mm -hmm. How's, what's that going to look like? Um, and then they will, they will present it to us. And if, if it's not favorable, we say no, you know, for any number of reasons, Mm -hmm. um, there's no, you know, there's, we have to decide on our own what we want to do and what factors weigh to me may be different from a guy down in Portland, Oregon. And, and we have to look at where the costs are in our business and how we're going to tie it in. But they know that they mm-hmm. kind of know what, what everyone's, they know that. So they know the parameters when they want to look at a potential price increase, they know the parameters and they all, you know, everybody wants to, everybody's, the supplier's costs are all going up. So it's not like a price increase isn't something that you kind of expect every now and then. Cause a lot right. of these small brewers, you know, they're struggling and um, to get out of that, you got to raise prices. Right. You're in this interesting uh, situation too, because the, the the brewery decides how much they want to sell their beer for, and the retailer decides how much they're going to sell a pint for or a six pack for, and you're kind of uh, in the middle. I I assume you, I assume <laughs> it would be there would be antitrust laws if there was a lot of coordination along these lines, but um, it it seems like are in a situation of of a, a, being in that middle ground it seems slightly weird to be uh not knowing what the you know we do. what the final price we is do. going to be on a product we, that we has know a fixed that cost when we establish a cost we know what our retail customer is going to price it at mm-hmm. we, we know that fred myers okay. what what they what percentage margin they use in in establishing their price points we all we know that so when, when we sell to them, we know the impact that it has on the consumer price and if that's good or bad. And, you know, so we're going to try to hit, you know, so what we're weighing is we need to hit good price points for God's sakes. We want the consumer to buy the product. And then at the same time, costs are going up because the suppliers constantly going to charge you more. So we ha- to your point, we have to constantly weigh that. But we know what the, the end result is going to be, and and it's dictated by the supplier because they know 
kind of what the middle tiers is going to do, and it kind of ends up where they they kind of wanted it to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I actually have a follow a follow up, which is when when a Fred Meyer decides it's going to do a you know a a, a two dollar markdown on six packs of a particular beer, are you involved in that? Do you do you anticipate that? Is that a is that a response to demand or is that something planned? No, we don't know anything about that. What we do know is that if we sell if we decide to sell Fred Meyer something for a dollar, we know what they're going to market up and what that'll, what that'll sell for. But right. we don't know what they have up their sleeve. If they want to do something, um, you know, six weeks from now, price, right. I mean, that's something they would work out directly with, um, the, the, the beer supplier, but the yeah. pricing's already been set. Uh, interesting. This relates to a whole nother dimension of what distributors are, uh, kind of necessarily must do, and I assume it's something you enjoy doing, which is you're, you're actually the, the company that's selling the beer, right? So when you go to a retailer, yeah. uh, it's not the brewery that's selling the beer to that retailer, it's you. So if, if, a, new, if a new brand comes into your uh, book, uh, whether it's an established brand or new brewery, um, you're, it's kind of up to you to build that brand. It's up to you to decide what beers are going to be popular in the marketplace. If it's a craft brewery, um, there's, there's a huge sales component here, um, that you're responsible for and not the brewery. Will you talk a little bit about how that process works, how you, how you work that out with the brewery? Um, and well, you, pay you know, how you go consumer. about doing that. I mean, we sell what the consumer is going to buy. Um, so it doesn't matter. You know, obviously the supplier has information and, and you know, we know if it's going to sell, if it's a, a new intro into a category that's taking off, we know that's going to sell so that you don't have to sell us on that. But it's, it's, it's really up to the consumer. What the, what the consumer is going to buy, we have a good idea of 90% of it. But you want to, you want to make sure that consumers getting lots of new things to try and, and, and test. And, you know, you want to stay, stay abreast and, and keep a close pulse on what the consumers drinking, thinking and, and doing, and you have to be nimble to do that. So my point being is, yeah, we are selling beer. <laughs> it, it's really the consumer. It's what the consumer, we're going to give you what you want. Yeah, that's that's partly true, but it's also true that uh, uh, you know, pick a brewery that's grown a lot, like um, uh, Ninkasi, for example. You mentioned them earlier. At, at one point, Ninkasi was a tiny little Eugene brewery um, that nobody was clamoring for, and I think they were, you know, they were sort of on the forefront of selling IPAs, which which probably weren't uh, leading the category at that time. So there's this push pull, right? So customers didn't know yet that they wanted it, and they didn't know yet that Ninkasi was going to be this big brand. And I'm sure that the distributor, their distributor partnerships were incredibly important in pushing that along so that the customers <laughs> uh, grew to love it. Like there's, uh, there's a relationship here between uh, put, uh, supply and demand or push and pull. Um, and I'm wondering how. Well, Ninkasi is uh, a good example. I, I guess Nikasi is a good example coming, you know, years ago yeah, okay. to the state of Washington. And you can, you can many other uh, brands, but it was a different time and there wasn't nearly as much competition, but we all knew about Nikasi from Oregon and Oregon's, you know, you never know if Oregon's very provincial with their products. You never know if Oregon's going to sell up here and vice versa with Washington. You just don't know. And, um, but Nikasi came up and, Everybody, heck yeah, they'd like to sell that, especially back then. And um, and then it it got traction. And as you get traction, you get momentum. You know, it's it's you know, as a sales management team, you get in front of a group. We have this new great brand, Nikasi. You kick it off. You know, everyone's slapping high five, woohoo, woohoo. You know, cut it in and make a big deal out of it. And you get maybe a couple packages and 50% of the accounts in, in 45 days, which is incredible. And then it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's come to Jesus time. How did it do? How did it do? Um, and in the case <laughs> of Ninkasi, 
it did very well, which translated into we got to get more packages in Nikasi. We've got to get more space dedicated to Nikasi um, because Nikasi's, the consumers responded and Nikasi's really planned. So Nikasi is an example of, of how that works. Okay, well, thanks again to Craig for joining us. That is, as we've mentioned before, part one of a two-part interview. So tune in next week for part two. Uh, but we'll leave it at that for now and invite you back next time. Jeff, any other parting thoughts? No, not really. Just to say thanks to Craig. Uh, he was, you know, I'm always shocked when people are so willing to just chat. Um, he's a busy guy and he took out an hour and a half of his time to talk to us. And uh, this is such an important topic and he's quite eloquent about uh, un unfolding it all. So I, I'm just feeling appreciation after hearing that again. Yeah, it's a delicate, it's a delicate relationship and we've been pretty unsuccessful so uh, up until now getting distributors to, to come on the record and talk to us. So um, I really appreciate him taking time. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, tune in next week for part two, but right now, a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Uh, we do actually have some uh, mailbag that we'll get to next week. Uh, we had such a nice time talking to Craig that that's the uh, the bulk of this show, but next uh, next show we'll get to, to mailbag. Uh, jeff blogs at beervanablog and he tweets it at beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right. Well, uh, we didn't have a chance to even open a beer this time, Jeff, but I will say cheers to you. And cheers to you. And maybe uh, for the next pod, we will have some beer. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point of doing the podcast, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I know. We've gotten – where did we go wrong? No beer. Yeah. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll see you next week, Jeff. All right. Cheers. Cheers.